0: Okay, let's begin a prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. We pray that as we open the word and, and look at it together that we could grow in grace and knowledge and wisdom. May we understand what's essential in Christian ministry, what the message is, what the needs of every church are, what a congregation looks like, what our message looks like, what the gospel's about, how we grow, and what's the point of all this as we're looking for you, uh, for your return for us. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are here on 23 and 24 of 2 Timothy 2. Why are we in 2 Timothy 2? Because this is filling out details that uh, are pertinent to Paul's message about the church which he delivered in Acts chapter 20. So this is a lengthy excursus, filling out more about uh, leadership, the message of leadership, what elders are about, what the church is about. That are be this being first presented in Acts 20, filled out after Paul later, when Timothy is, himself is in Ephesus. Last week we talked about ignorant speculations and why they are uh, not proper for the church because we are in the realm of revealed truth that can be adjudicated if there are errors or issues or failures to live up to it, believe as we understand and know the truth and grow in the unity of the faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. Speculations are always going to be more interesting to people than exegesis. You can count on it. But it is, according to Paul, a sidetrack that'll get us nowhere. Because speculations cannot ever be fully how would you say it, adjudicated to the point where we know what the truth is. The same speculations have gone on for centuries and decades or whatever you want to say.
1: Yes, Brian. Brian. I had a question about last week when you gave some references to this section, and one of them was uh, Titus 3:9, okay. where you said, uh, "Where the Lord says, avoid uh, foolish controversies and genealogies and strife." But I want to, I want to zero in on this foolish controversies, and does that mean when you have people within the church that have different Theological views, uh, i.e., uh, uh, mid-trib, post-trib, all of these types of things, or different ideas on what the text actually says, would that be considered controversies that a, a are foolish not controversy about genealogy? N- not if it's
0: something that can be adjudicated. Through biblical exegesis, then it's not foolish. Okay. If there's data in the Bible that's pertinent and um, accessible, then we should look at it. Genealogies can't resolve somebody's spiritual issues. Okay, you can go to 23andMe, but you're not going to find salvation there. I can tell you what you'll find the Adamic race.
1: And uh, yes. So what Eric is laying out in his YouTube channel, he's, and we'll just take the subject of the tribulation because that's controversial within the church. Okay. So what Eric is laying out in his YouTube channel he's doing good exegesis and he's laying out what the, the, the facts are right. as far as that. But but still, there's people within the church, if you will, that disagree with that. So it's not it's not fruitful to argue that uh, kind well, of... Well, no, but
0: it is fruitful to just... Then if somebody has a better reading, then let's hear what it is. We need to be able to... Ass- make uh, judgment about what's the best reading when I get to, uh, in the sermons the first Corinthians 14 we'll, we'll point out that that's what judging prophecy is. You may all prophesy one or two, like two by three two or three at a time that the others judge. that's what we do here. and if I lay out here a scripture and I make uh, an application or a claim or a cross-reference and saying this is important, here's why it's important, here's how it's pertinent, and you look at it and say, I think Bob has uh, stayed up too late to get enough sleep, got it wrong, then the data has got to be there in the scripture, the material, so that we can adjudicate truth claims. We're not in favor of church authorities saying, this was all figured out, we figured it out, you listen to us, sign on a dotted line now, let's go on to something else. I don't believe in that. I believe in the authority of scripture and the priesthood of every believer. Every believer can search the scriptures to see if these things be true. Eric's material and eschatology is no different. It's grounded in Scripture, not just Eric's mind. Yes.
2: Yeah, amen. I think, Bob, you hit it is that it has to be biblical. The issues that we're arguing about is something revealed in the Scriptures, and I think Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine again furnishes the framework where the things that the Lord has revealed belong to us and our children forever. The things that the Lord has not revealed belong to the Lord. So, for example, you'll be at an eschatology conference, and inevitably, the questions go into the speaker, and they'll argue and wrestle about who the Antichrist is. Well, I don't think that that's been revealed. And so the questions about what has actually been revealed go by the wayside, and we see evidence here that we should debate and, in fact, challenge and correct those who are in opposition to what the Scriptures reveal. It says in verse 24, but be kind to all, able to teach patient when wrong. The next verse, verse 25, says, correcting those who are in opposition, perhaps God may grant them Repentance. Well, how could Timothy do that if you can't engage in any discussion or quarreling at all? The issue is if it's over something revealed, then we have to it, deal with it. If it's over something that's not been revealed, yeah. then I don't think we, as Bob it, is saying, waste our time. It's part of it. the whole counsel of God. Amen. Okay.
0: I, I noticed him. I know something I never cited. Uh, let me read this and I'll go to you next. I wrote, I wrote all this and didn't read it last week, so I'm going to kind of address that question. So, this is thinking this over. I, I made four points here. Number one if the other's claim is based on a conspiracy theory that is impervious to counter evidence, the dispute is useless. And so you can spend the rest of your life, they're still going to believe whatever it is. Okay, B, or two. If the other's claim is based on parochial claims from church history, deal with it from scripture alone, not your own tradition or other stream of thought from church history. That would be pertinent to this too. We have always believed, and it was stated in the council of so and so at some place this is the way it is so don't tell me anything else but no council in church history was directly inspired by the Holy Spirit the scripture is and then you can say well our tradition says and then they go to that from and so you well then you just go into your camps and give up on coming to the knowledge of the truth so I'm rejecting that approach authority of scripture priesthood of every believer, an informed, trained, biblically literate congregation can judge truth claims. Not just read the back of the hymnals to see what our position is. Because typically, after a couple of generations, none of the leaders believe it anyhow. It's just a wink and a nod. Yeah. All right. C, the third point. If the Opponent is driven by blind passion and emotion; the battle will be pointless. Oh boy, that is absolutely true. And and last, and then I'm going to air it: if the battle is uh, is over a topic or issue of no consequence to the gospel or Christian ministry, it should be left kept out of the church. In other words, we're debating matters from general revelation. That fits in Deuteronomy 29.29. We're wanting to know the truth from Scripture that directly involve Christian theology, our beliefs about salvation, redemption, atonement, uh, sanctification. Yes, eschatology, ecclesiology, the basic things of Christian truth, all of which are derived from Scripture, that's what we're here for. If we want to debate what is or isn't a healthy diet, there's a forum out there somewhere to do that. But general revelation isn't adjudicated within the church, although there are certainly claims from general revelation that have theological influence And when it starts leading people away from scripture, we'll enter in and Eric and I will attack it and deal with it. Okay? In other words, global warming doctrine says the production of CO2 is sinful, whereas the Bible tells us that God created the world and made it habitable. And we know from reality that every... Human creates CO2, so you're defining uh, uh, original sin as the production of CO2. So that's an encroachment of claims on the scripture and on our theology, and I will fight back on that one because it's not a sin to produce CO2. All right, so do you see the point? But we don't want to get into things that we can't adjudicate whether people, I mean, again, h- how they deal with medical issues or whatever, matter of Christian liberty. Yes, a brother. Yeah, I,
3: I have a kind of an application It's a little more down to earth, too. Um, yesterday, with our evangelism group, we ran into a guy who knew so much scripture. Uh, my friend Paul's sitting here. He, several of us talked to this guy. He knew Scripture. I mean, I, I couldn't believe how much he knew. But so many wrong interpretations. And uh, one of the classic ones was, and he was very pleasant but very dominant in, in the conversation. He, uh, he felt that we should, we were in uh, PV Park area near Franklin in Chicago, and he said, "You know, you guys come down here to our neighborhood, and you should have been bring. You should have brought hamburgers and hot dogs. Today's my birthday, and you know, and I'm hungry, and you should feed me." And he referred to the sheep and the goats judgment. He 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 recited everything (laughs) that Jesus said in Matthew 34. You know, uh, you know that, that. to the extent that you did this, to the least of these, you know, my children. And, and of course, totally wrong interpretation, but we we did not, we resisted being quarrelsome. <laughs> so I'm going to pat ourselves on the back. But what I'm trying to say is that you run into so many just, just, not only at the church level, but just when you're out talking to people, you run into some bad theology. Yeah,
0: right? uh, they're... The bottom line of that sort of argument yeah. is I want to be in charge, you jump when I tell you.
3: Yeah, and we had to just walk away from yeah, it. We spent and, some time we spent some time and had, you know, a nice time right. together, but you just have to walk away from I sometimes. run into
0: that. And when we were on twenty fourth and Nicola, the group I was with, I was a pastor there for twenty four years, one of the pastors, we, we put on events with food. But no matter what you do doesn't mean they're gonna be happy with you because they want to be in charge, and they want you to do what they say. Jesus dealt with that in, I think, Matthew 11. What shall I compare this generation? We played the dirge, and you didn't mourn. We played wedding, and you didn't rejoice. They want you to jump through their who? And I run into that with people that are parochial, the King James only. They are going to... De- chairman everything about the discussion, and and if you don't disagree with them, start from their point. There's no, there's no desire to learn. I already know everything. Don't tell them anything. I'm my own little pope in my own little world. And boy, I ran into that a thousand times. Well, we're wanting instead the authority of Scripture, the priesthood of every believer, bring whatever translations, use whatever gifts you have and look at the text and learn together because therein we grow in the grace and knowledge of God. And that's what means of grace look like. As we understand our mutual salvation and see what we want to avoid and what we want to affirm, it helps us grow. Yes, Scott. I got ring. Okay. Take this down. Um I'll see what I can do to get rid of my little ring. Thank you for pointing that out. I'm not sure. We have different speakers that use this, so is that a little more mellow? I'm trying to add some bass into it. Take hello? Any better? Take out the treble. Hello? All right, let's do it. Now, um, what? 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 Yes. Yes.
4: <laughs> um alistair Begg has a saying that has been very helpful to me he says the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things there you go okay he says the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things and when i think about that there are things in speculation people speculate about uh you know uh eschatology and all that but I don't think they're the main things I think the main things really are surrounding soteriology how how are people saved I think that has to be in the top category you better get that thing that right or you're in big trouble but people can differ on other things and still be saved so I, I, I like that saying make sure you got the plain things right everything is important in the Bible but there are some things that are more important than other things.
0: Good point. Uh, I will say this. As we're defining the church, some who would say that are taking main things and throwing them out all together, including all eschatology, including judgment coming. I just finished the whole book, went through it a second time, got all the topics laid out, and it's about Christian worldview. Nothing about Avoiding imminent possible judgment. Nothing about the wrath of God against sin. Everything about building a Christianized society now. So I would say they're fail, they claim to have the main thing. God created the world out of nothing. But they, I don't even think they have a biblical worldview. What kind of biblical worldview throws out all the red letters where Jesus talked about hell and sudden judgment? It's all gone. Is that mean or not? I don't know where big is on that, but I would hope he believes it. So I'm very careful about the slogan Christianity. Let's just, so I've read this thing. It's just driving me nuts, so I'll write the article now. A um, guy named Daryl Miller, he cites people I admire. Uh, Francis Schaeffer. I've heard Vishal Maungawati several times. I heard Schaefer speak in person. Uh, he cites other scholars. Uh, but his eschatology is dead wrong. And everything is about building Christian civilization until the kingdom of God gradually comes. And his idea is discipling nations is Christianizing pagans without whether or not they're saved. Daryl Miller. I would say he's a serious, false teacher with a wicked doctrine, and he has a whole book about making disciples, and he cannot define who a disciple is. Okay? So, uh, we got a mess on our hands. We got a huge mess on our hands. And, how can you cite Matthew 28 over and over and over again and never do one tiny iota of exegesis? Somebody needs to get the scripture, do the exegesis. And I asked Eric, because he teaches you through Matthew, after I read Miller's book, Miller's from YWAM. I said, Who, in Matthew, who's a disciple? Is Western civilization a disciple? So, if you're not personally born of God and building on the rock and believing the teachings of Jesus, fleeing from the wrath to come, being taught the words of God, and serving Christ, you're not a disciple. So, how can a geopolitical entity be a disciple? All right. Speculation. Scripture alone is the ground. Here we go, second point here. We engage in exegesis, not speculation. So the word ignorant here is apidutos, which means uninstructed, uneducated, and uh, would be a word from child. a child arguing about something they would not even know what the issues are. That's what that word means. Quarrelsome here means to engage in heated dispute without... Without use of weapons to fight quarrel dispute. See that speculations can be disputed forever and never come to a conclusion. It says in 1 Timothy 3:3, 3, 3, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Now let's, uh, I want to try to make some progress here. The Lord's bondservant there, doulos, which means slave, the Lord's bondservant, must not be quarrelsome. Uh, the one thing that the elder, the bond—we're all bond servants, according to Titus 1:1. All of us who know Christ are His slaves or His servants, and it's not our job to be pugnacious, ready to punch somebody, to be just kind of almost impossible to get along with. It's our job. To be patient, and the elders, and for sure, is talking about here to Timothy, be patient when wrong, in gentleness correcting those. So, uh, that's something that's really hard for young men to be. I know, it was this this verse changed my life in the '80s when I saw I was just almost dead wrong, you know, everything I was doing, in the, when I was a young in my twenties. Um, and what a wonderful thing when I had some teachers who'd been seen it all, been through it all. One of my teachers was a military chaplain for 20 years. He was in Korea. I had him when I was a new Christian, and he would just teach us how to be patient, things you're going to run into, people that are backslid, and what that looks like, and he was just a, a godly, wonderful person And that sort of thing develops as we are involved in interacting with each other, encouraging one another, and together opening the scriptures and searching them to see what's true. So the bondservant would be um, someone who is a slave of the Lord Jesus. You don't have any status in society by being a doulos unless you're the doulos of a very important, famous person than you might be. Now, um, what are these, what is it uh, to be quarrelsome but, notice must not be quarrelsome but be kind to all, able to teach patient when wrong. So kindness is one of the fruits of the spirit. It's something that should characterize those who are born of God, and who are growing the grace and knowledge of God, and this kindness should give us the uh, willingness to patiently teach. And that would certainly be true of anyone who teaches children, but here it's applied to the church. So, um, that how would you apply that properly? In other words, it isn't, I'm right, you're wrong, so therefore you be quiet. It's listening to the argument, looking at the context of a pertinent scripture, and then teaching the scripture, and allowing, someone may say, I don't think your scripture applies to what you're applying it. And that could be anybody in the congregation, because elders want to learn
5: yes uh brother paul I think it 's a really good thing to look at the opposite of kind, and that 's to be high handed puffed up, uh, trying to appear as an authority uh, and uh, wanting other people to you know bow before you or wherever. but kind is being being able to be vulnerable and yet staying your stand, you know keeping your stand i think that 's uh, okay anyway, what I was really want to talk about. <laughs> I really want to talk. Is I did a little bit of a word study on that word. Produce is quarrels. Produce is to give birth to a quarrel. In other words, the opposite of creation. You start out with something, end up with nothing. But um, so produce. What happens if there's somebody within the body, and we're talking within the body here, and we're trying to actually apply. Uh, what we're being learned in yes, Scripture. Yeah, that's true. And we're trying to apply it, and we're wrong. We're just simply wrong in the way we're applying it. Uh, then I think all these things, yeah, being kind, being able to learn. How are we wrong in applying this? Yeah, well, if you don't use Scripture as your basis...
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, then, of course, you're wrong. Well, see, so that's, that's kind of the point here. I have the Greek in front of me, and that word give birth or produce. Really, gana'o means give birth to. So speculations, that, uh, as, like those of an uninstructed child, reject those, knowing that they give birth to ma'ke fights, battles. Because you can't really ever resolve them. Speculations aren't grounded on the rock in, like as in Matthew chapter 7, building on the rock. The slave, the doulos of the Lord, master kurios, uh, it's um, a negated necessity, must not battle. Here's our word from the battles, make, here it is, makomai, opponent verb, to fight. To fight. I'm ready to fight. Who wants to fight? I'm ready. Like the guy, the the pro wrestler. All right, who's going to take me on? That's not gospel ministry. Okay? But gentle, there's an adversity of all. Gentle toward all. And then able to teach. How will the servant of the Lord be able to teach? I would advise everyone... To begin spending a lifetime doing biblical exegesis. And that the biblical exegesis engaged, that we engage in is grounded in the entire text that we're studying, not skip a forward to topical proof text. Some of the most frustrating things, and Eric runs into this and so we t- talk about The people that come after us about things rarely have done exegesis on huge sections or even a book. And they skip this, and they skip here, and they skip here, and they skip here, and they skip here. And then they just construct something, and all the rest is a blank. Literally, a blank. That's what this Daryl Miller does. He knows Matthew 28 disciples of the nations, but he doesn't know what a disciple is because he hasn't read enough of Matthew to know every time in Matthew. He maybe read it, but ignored it. How come in Matthew we have all this material about disciples, and you're writing a book about discipling, and you don't know what a disciple is? And I'm going to challenge him that publicly. Uh, tell me why you don't know what a disciple is, and you're writing a book about it because the evangelical church that we've known does not reward diligent exegesis. They don't care. Don't give us that. Now, I'm not saying that's universal. John MacArthur spent a lifetime doing exegesis. If you want to have solid theology, spend the first 25 years of your ministry doing exegesis. And once you are so grounded in that text, all of it, without skipping the whole counsel of God, that will influence what you're willing to believe. Because when you hear disciple, for example, your mind will go back through Luke and Mark and Matthew. What are disciples like? Who are disciples? What makes somebody a disciple? What, what are disciples doing? And you don't come to the conclusion that it's a geopolitical entity. You, you come to the conclusion that it's a person who's gone through the narrow gate, who is trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, who's building on the rock. He who hears these teachings of mine and does them is the one who builds on the rock. Geopolitical entities don't do that. Persons do. And that the church is designed by the Lord Jesus to be viable and powerful and real anywhere in the world, even if the entire society is against them. You can be in China, be underground, be church. You can be in Iran, you can be in South Africa, which is more Christianized. But wherever you may be, the church cannot be stamped out by the geopolitical entity. And the calling of the church isn't to disciple. But how do you not know that unless you never did exegesis? If you did exegesis, you'd know it. It's obvious. It's immediate. And you're not going to be deceived. How come millions of people are deceived? Because they haven't done it. They haven't done the study. Yes, Brother Brian.
1: I'm going to disagree with something you said. and I'm sure you'll correct me. Well, uh, maybe not. Maybe you'll correct me. A disciple is not necessarily being added to the family of God. Because didn't Judas a lot Wilson. of disciples just turn and walk away from Jesus? Judas. Disci- huh? Judas, prime yeah. example. But, but not just Judas. Didn't, didn't Jesus say before he went to the cross that it, everybody left him? They were disciples. They were, they were studying what he said. But right. just, because you dis- just because you're a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean that you're a saved Christian.
0: Good point. I appreciate that. And Eric's been going through Matthew. But what we find out is Matthew is telling us how to te- tell the difference between the true and the false. The multitudes who will follow when they get free bread... John 6, aren't the same ones. I would refer to, to the building on the rock section. Where is that? Matthew 7? Matthew 7? If you build on the rock, uh, you're my, uh, well, here's another one. If you continue my word, you're a disciple indeed. That's in John, I think. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There were disciples throughout the scriptures that went away. But it the disciple that is built on the rock perseveres. And it would be the difference between Peter and Judas. Sometimes we don't know. Now, it could vary. That would apply to the Let's apply that to the church. We're saying the church isn't an institution, it's an organism. The organism means every member, whether it's the little toe, the ear, any organ of the body, all attached to the head. It's an analogy. But it's alive because it's attached to the head, which is Jesus Christ. In any group, there may be people with false assurance. First Corinthians 14, if an unbeliever comes in and you all prophesy, be convicted, ideal condition. We can't see the heart. God can't. God can. they, they baptize Simon the sorcerer. But later, Peter said, you and your money can perish together. They didn't realize. So we the point is, God knows those who are his. But if we can't define what it would be to build on the rock, what it would be, even if you fall away to undergo discipline and come back, like Peter when he denied the Lord three times... We can't even define the outcome we're looking for, which is someone instructed in the way of the Lord, built on the rock, cleaving to the Lord and to one another, encouraging one another to love and good works, hungering for the truth of the word of God. We can't define that. And we just think living in Western civilization with the Ten Commandments monument in a park that must be disciples. What are we talking about? We're we're not even on the same page. So you're right. Not everybody called a disciple is because Jesus. Many will say, "Lord, Lord," and I'll say, "I never knew you." Eric, you've been teaching Matthew.
2: Yeah, you know, I was going to just to make a wider point on exegesis and the importance of it. Everything that's taught in Scripture is important and everything can lead to other problems. Let me give you an example. There's a man named William Bell. He teaches that the resurrection already occurred in 70 AD and that the only resurrection that's coming is a spiritual one. And he distorts Hosea 13, 14, cited at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, oh death, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your victory? And he says the original context of that has to do with spiritual death, separation from God by the Israelites. Therefore, that can't be talking about a physical resurrection. The problem with that is because the man doesn't teach anything else, and the people apparently don't learn anything else other than full preterism, when you read Paul, you realize he reappropriates the Old Testament oftentimes. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says regarding paying the teacher, he says, do not muzzle the ox, treading out the grain. Now, can you imagine if I were to make the point that that text can't be about paying the teacher or the apostle because it originally had to do with oxen. Well, of course, Paul is reappropriating Scripture. He's going to a lesser to greater. If you didn't muzzle the ox that tread out the grain, you don't muzzle the preacher or the apostle, etc. So Paul does that all the time, and that's exactly what he's doing with Hosea 13. But these are the points in exegesis that need to be made very carefully, lest you have whole groups of people that are led astray thinking, well, yep, there's no physical resurrection anymore. And if there's no physical resurrection, if all the promises were fulfilled in 70 AD, that may be eschatology, but how devastating is that? If you think that you have to recreate Israel or that you are Israel, think of the ramifications in theology, that's what Bob is showing, is that the relationship between the way we do church is directly related to eschatology. Ecclesiology goes hand in hand with eschatology. One more point, the vast majority of your life is ahead of you. It's eschatology. It's in the future. It's the resurrection. It's the promises. How did people persevere and go through great difficulty according to Romans 11, it was by believing what was in the future, not by looking behind them. And so all scripture is important. And as Bob is saying, it's exegesis, going through the data, yes. verse by verse, week after week, doing the hard work.
0: I cannot emphasize that enough. Thank you, Eric. Absolutely. I don't know who will ever hear this, but if anyone at some future time hears this audio recording or whatever, get grounded in exegesis. The tools are there. We've never had better tools. We've never had better opportunity to know how these things are laid out and to grow. And get grounded in it and live in it. Make it part of your being. The very teaching of the word of God. And it will sanctify you. It will equip you. And you're going to be better off. You're not going to be worse off by knowing the word of God. You'll never be worse off by knowing the whole counsel of God. And elders and preachers and teachers, make that where you're at, exegesis, and it will help you. And It's out there. I notice that there's some great commentaries written by people that in some way are probably part of the institutional church, but they know what the truth is, and they're, they're given the professional courtesy to be allowed to teach what the text says in the commentaries. The newest ones are the best ones. People think differently. No, the old ones are parochial. They're sponsored by somebody, and if it's a Lutheran commentary, it's going to have a Lutheran doctrine. This is just you get it right, and people will study it, whoever they are. Here's an example. Dr. Yarbrough on 2 Timothy 2, 23-24. He's talking about the uneducated and ignorant speculations produce quarrels and then, quarreling is seldom, he says, seldom compatible with the pursuit of righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Let me cite Yarborough. Admittedly, there is a tension in this matter. At the same time, Timothy should stay out of certain kinds of conflicts. In some, and perhaps most situations, he should, quote, fight the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy 6.12. Publicly rebuke elders who are sinning. 1 Timothy 5:20. Guard the good deposit. Uh, guard the good deposit. 1 2 Timothy 1:14. Suffer like a military combatant. 2 Timothy 2:3. 2, and perform other proactive, if not aggressive, functions. So much for the Johnny Toast pastor. Okay, uh, and I grew up with that. The good Lord would never send anybody to hell. Everybody's good. We all just have to kind of get along. And I said, but did Jesus do miracles? No, there there are no miracles. We know that. These are stories to inspire us. I laughed. Not because I was a Christian, because I thought, well, science is more incisive than this. At least in math, you're right or wrong. Not in church. That's not Christianity. So Yarborough really pointed out there's plenty of times this is military. We're fighting a good fight of the faith, but we're also kind and patient and wanting to hear the needs of real Christians who are trying to understand the will of God and how that God can change us and how we can survive in a wicked world that hates us and how we can encourage one another to love and good works. I saw something today I want to share with everyone. Go ahead, Dan.
6: I'm just going to ask you guys if uh, what, what you think of denominationalism, I guess. Um, is it biblical? And to me, it, it almost pigeonholes people into believing certain ways without doing the exegesis. Um, yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, I've, I've been accused by my family of... They, they want to know what what kind of church I go to, and I say, well, it's non-denominational, and they say, well, that's a cop out because I'm not committing myself to, to one strain of thought or something. And I right. and I try to tell them about the you know the the whole counsel of God and and, right. and examining Scripture and not you know not being. Um, under any type of uh, denomination that makes you know this is the way you're supposed to think. We're, we're, I guess we're more free thinkers here in the sense that we're scripture is our authority rather than an institution that type of thing. Yes, so.
0: I thank you. Good question. I think that the church defined as an institution is a historical reality, but a horrible tragedy for the definition of the church. And the thing that really opened my eyes was that sermon I read by Abraham Kuyper from 1870. One of He's he cited throughout Darrell Miller's book as a good source, and so uh, Rick Warren loves Kuyper. He's considered one of the top people as far as having a conservative uh, Christendom. And Kuiper himself said the institutional church did not exist until after 300 A.D. So the big promotion of the institutions, Abraham Kuyper, says it didn't come from Christ and his apostles. It developed in church history. So you end up back in Rome. Because if you're going to go to the institution, you might as well go all the way back to the grand institution with the longest set of claims and the most people that have spoken for God, and you go back to Rome. And that's what institution looks like. My claim is the church is not an institution. It's an organism. And that those who are alive by being born of God with a love for the truth, a love for Christ, A love for one another. You go anywhere in the world and you run into another born-again Christian without knowing anything else about them. there's still a connection. You're still part of the same body. And there's something you have in common even if the data is jagged because you had different things. But when you run into somebody who loves the Lord, there's a desire to learn and grow. And we have... uh, Myself, anyhow, in traveling and speaking back 25 years ago, 20 years ago, you go anywhere and you run into people that are just hungry to learn. And they may be four or five or 10 out of a 1,000. What explains that? And so, Dan, to your question, the parochialism is a hindrance and a confusion, and it's a misdefinition of the church. And so the very essence, the basic groundwork would be the authority of scripture and the priesthood of every believer. And then the next step after that, if you want to big categories, are the five solas. Okay? Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Those are sine qua non, without which Not. And that's where we got to go. The parochial will cause the wink and the nod. I saw that at Bethel, saw it at North Central Bible College. The teachers who write the commentaries know what the truth is because they spent their life studying it. But they have to affirm the assemblies of God's 17 fundamental truths and they don't even believe half of them because they're not biblical. Healing's in the atonement, so if you're sick, then you got a problem with your atonement. They didn't believe it, but they had to say they did to be part of it, and so same thing happens. The parochial will just make the honest people fudge. Why not take away the parochial and let people openly teach and correct one another and have what did say we with all what did Paul say we with open face or with open boldly you know open I can't, I'm thinking of a term, I'll have to go look it up. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, I, I just, uh, these people that advocate for their denomination, Everything they just have to be ignoring every, almost everything Jesus said about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. I've been studying Matthew because I want to just check up on Eric here. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) I want to see if I get it right and then I listen to what Eric says. But there's every metaphor, I think, you guys could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think every metaphor Jesus uses about the kingdom of heaven is that it is a spiritual, invisible thing. It's it's you know it's the it, it's just in the background and, and so how they can how people can then translate that or, or trans whatever the word is uh, translate that into a physical thing is just beyond me. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, well, see what I'll tell you what happens and again I mentioned several of these and I've interviewed people. We've had people show up and tell me about it. Uh, groups that start. with with the gospel and something that they thought was new and necessary, they will build something they believe is bulletproof. They will put every kind of requirement, uh, they'll even put poison pills into their Constitution bylaw. This is going to be taught. This is going to be done. This is going to be this way. And they they nail it all down. Here it is. And nobody's going to change this into perpetuity. And a few generations later, when the great, the grandchildren, or great-grandchildren of the founders are in charge, they don't believe any of it. And they're stuck with it. So they either go emergent or postmodern, say words have multiple meanings, and they just do whatever they want. Or in some cases, they have to walk away from it and let the thing die. We just we talked to a pastor who ended up with he's an elder actually, who ended up with a group, and the constitution is full of poison pills. And you can't change anything, including things that really do need to be changed. But whatever was the priority of the founders had to stay in there, or the thing dies, tied to the building, tied to the money, tied to the property. But the church isn't a building, it isn't money, it isn't property, it's a people. And the people may have to just be fluid as far as where they meet. Isn't that in the Bible? Um... Uh, I want to go back to that thing that, uh, Brian, I thought of something yesterday when I was studying. Let's all do this. Look at how topics come back. Turn, Everyone turn to 1 Timothy 1 5. And let's read that. I think it's a, a key statement about the church and Christian ministry. 1 Timothy 1 5. Then I got to go back. 22. 1 Timothy 1, 1.5. Yes, you read it, please. Thank you.
1: But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith.
0: The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. So there is a purpose statement at the beginning of 1 Timothy, Paul writing from prison to Ephesus. 1 Timothy 1, 1.5. So take that as a goal for any local congregation. The goal of our instruction is a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Now let's go to 2 Timothy 2.22, which is, I think, another uh, key purpose statement and look how he comes back to the same thing. Someone read 2 Timothy 2.22. I, I don't have that slide anymore. to get off this PowerPoint. Go ahead, uh,
1: Brian. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure
0: heart. With those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is a pure heart, good conscience. You go to 2 Timothy 2.22, we're calling the Lord together with those with a pure heart. There's the salient question. How does anyone get a pure heart? Spending 30 days finding your purpose. (laughs) Is that it? (laughs) That's not it? Okay. Um, how does anyone have a pure heart? Only God can cleanse our sin. What can we know the song, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Pure heart comes only from God in his grace. He's able to cleanse the very inner person, the very conscience that's defiled by sin and make us new, make us holy, make us saints, used to be rebels and sinners, and that is what the church is about. That's who we are by his grace, positionally. What we do either solidifies that, extends it, enhances it, so that the sanctification continues or it's going off in some other
1: direction, which is of no value. Does that make sense? So you don't say a little prayer and then slip your hand up so nobody else can see it? Well, the pure heart happens. but No,
0: you confess the gospel. Dear ones, these things have to be applicable to people anywhere. I I know what I did wrong. I got in front of that speaker. Um, I'm supposed to know these things. This should work anywhere, any place. Even if you're stuck in solitary confinement, you might be able to get a pure heart if you go in there knowing something about the Lord and the gospel. It comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from parochial statements that are enforced legally, whether people like it or not. And we've got to come to the realization that the future of the church is not our children. It's our spiritual prodigy, the born again. Those who are born again. If our children are born of God, that's part of the church. If not, then they're pagan. Parochial institutions are run by the descendants of Christians. And those descendants of Christians may be as pagan as any pagans you have anywhere. And what they will do is redefine, redefine, redefine. And pretty soon you have psychology, Myers-Briggs indicator, psychological theory, inner healing, whatever, anything and everything. The pure heart is not multi-generational. It's now for those who know the Lord. This is not to discourage us from teaching our children. But we're not in charge of born again. God is. They grow up. We'll see what happens. It's between them and the Lord. In the case of our two children, the one who said she wouldn't serve God is, and the one who said he would, would, isn't not who starts who ends Keep, thank you for your prayer, Jessica we went down to see her and uh, she's got a long haul to regain the left use and her left eye and all the things coordinating um, I can't tell you the joy and benefit and blessing she's been in, in my life and Diane's life for years but I can't question God's providence either because of what I've been through. And I couldn't do what I'm doing now had I not been through it. Yeah. I wouldn't see what was wrong. Literally wouldn't see what was wrong. Wouldn't be able to see what we're talking about right here. It's only because of everything getting beaten out of me and becoming hopeless that I can see what the church is. And to be seen as a... And failing and to be seen as a failure was a horrible thing, but it was necessary. And I can't tell you how much love we have for Jessica. Thank you for your prayers. Tell you a quick story just because i got to tell somebody about this story. Monday, Diane and I were fishing on Lake Minnetonka and uh, the weather was such that we could do that. We were out there and we had a bunch of fish and we're out on this sunken island out in the middle of a Bay I heard something. Somebody yell. I heard something, even though there's boats running around. I turned around, probably a quarter of a mile to a half mile away toward shore. There's a guy hanging on an outboard motor outside of a boat. Nobody in the boat. And Diane didn't hear it. I, don't, I heard it. So I said, well, I think that guy's in trouble. Pulled up our lines and headed over there, and this guy had we got there and he was hanging on he said I'm in trouble I'm running out of I can't I can't keep hanging on I'm running out of energy he said I'm 70 years old I two years younger than me he's young guy he's (laughs) hanging there and I said well I think the Lord sent us because it's a miracle I heard you he had he had fallen off the front of his boat Gone under, swallowed water. Had some kind of a inflatable life jacket that goes automatically, but it must have been really old. So it popped. He came to the surface. He was 10 feet from his boat. Took all of his energy to try to catch, he just grab a hold of the lower unit, and he couldn't get in. He couldn't. And he couldn't keep hanging on. Half of it was inflated. It wasn't going to keep him up. So we grabbed a hold of his boat. And I said, I, I, and he, he agreed. We, we got to get you to shallow water. I jumped in his boat, but there's no way he could get him in. He didn't have any strength left in his arm. And so, and then we're trying to work it to shallow water in front of this multi-multi-million-dollar mansion, just outside of the city of Y Z You can see Wyze right over here. This is one of those big mansions. We finally got it in, so his feet were on the ground. He he lost his wallet, but he had his keys. And um, uh, a couple other things, but he didn't have his wallet, but he had enough to be able to get home with his boat. And we got him into the boat, and we uh, it was a miracle. And never, How would you think it would be, be, be used to save somebody's life? Because uh, he, he, he said, you saved my life. I said, well, the Lord sent us along. How I heard him, I went back and a few days later and just... The, the tracking is still on my GPS and my hummingbird. I could see how far where I was and where he was. I could see the line. And, and then later, he was running around looking for his wallet. Couldn't he came by? He said, I had $180 in my wallet. If I had it, I'd give it to you. No, we don't need money. Get to your, he's, he's got a you know, big deal to try to get the thing on his truck. So the Lord used Diane and I to, in that way. And I was so smitten by it, the next time I went out, I wore my life jacket. <laughs> so, you never know what the Lord's going to do, but right away, I, uh, I thought, wow, how did I hear him? So, there was a long ways away. Well, anyhow, I appreciate each one of you. Honestly, um, I realize this isn't typically how a class would go, but this is, The forum, the next time I teach, we'll go here to verse 25, 24, 25, and we're going to talk about, and then we go to 26 people taking bondage to Satan. We're going to talk about how people escape from the snare of Satan, and it's not what you might think. And I'll tell a little story about how I used to try to do that, and how these verses changed my life forever in the mid-80s. So, I realize it takes some patience on your part for us to cover all this, but if this is life-changing, I think it might be for someone else. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Pray for Pastor Eric as he teaches the word of God to us that our hearts would be open, that we might learn and grow. Pray for each one here, each family. Pray for our daughter, Jessica, that you continue the healing process for her. Thank you for everything you've done for us. Thank you for the fellowship we have. Thank you for forgiveness of sins and the fellowship of the saints. And we we love you, Lord, and thank you for your kindness towards us. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen.